Hi, Sarah. Hi, Josh. Welcome to episode 15 of Descent Magazine's Belabored Podcast. We have an exciting episode planned for you today. Long time now, 15 episode, or shorter than 15 episode. We'll, we'll accept you if you're new. Um, listeners will know that we always start off with a little bit of a news roundup. Um, very long-time listeners who remember our first episode ever in our interview with Karen Lewis from the Chicago Teachers Union will know that there is a big fight that is still going on in Chicago about the closure of some 50 schools that the fight is being led at this point by a coalition of parents, teachers, and students. So this Tuesday, hearings began in two lawsuits. These are two lawsuits that are filed by parents against the school closings. One of those lawsuits argues that Um, Chicago Public Schools is violating the Americans with Disabilities Act by failing to set up an orderly process of closings for special needs children um, who are obviously face even more challenges in getting to a new school, um, adjusting to a new school. And the second suit actually alleges racial discrimination, which is sort of something a lot of us have been talking about in this week's news cycle, saying that these closings will disproportionately affect African-American students, as we talked about with Karen Lewis. And it argues, once again, that thousands of special needs children will be unnecessarily destabilized. So Tom Gagan, who we've mentioned on the show before, who is the author of a wonderful book about labor, How to Be for Labor When It's Flat on Its Back, is the lead attorney for the parents in these lawsuits. And he has said that they've already deposed at least four Chicago Public Schools employees. And we shall see what happens in those hearings. There's a third lawsuit that is actually filed by the Chicago Teachers Union that is set for an injunction hearing July 31st that they're hoping would actually stop the closing of some of these schools before the school year begins. Um, so we will definitely have more on that as we go on. Just before we started recording this week, news broke about a deal to avert what Republicans have been calling the nuclear option, removing the opportunity to filibuster certain nominees of the president. The deal that is being widely reported would allow seven nominations to take place, including a head for the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau, as well as nominees to the National Labor Relations Board. As a concession to Republicans, Democrats agreed to substitute out two of Obama's nominees, who Republicans were claiming they had an issue with based on they're being appointed during what was contested regarding whether or not it was a recess. It is being reported but not confirmed that the replacement nominees will be a retired associate general counsel from the AFL-CIO and the chief counsel of the Obama-appointed chair of the NLRB. This deal is interesting in a couple ways. One is that while it's generally being widely praised, Larry Cohen, the president of the Communications Workers of America, arguably the international union leader who's been most vocal and aggressive on this issue, is accusing Republicans of requiring a pound of flesh and accusing a handful of Democrats of acting in a way that was disgraceful by not standing united around getting the original nominees onto the labor board. It's also interesting in that Although, as some have noted, some of the laws restricting unions, business could have gone into court to get enforced even without the labor board, this whole showdown has still put unions in the position of aggressively fighting just to continue to have the lights on at the National Labor Relations Board, an agency that, as we talk about on this podcast, often is accused by activists and advocates on the pro-labor side of being quite limited in terms of actually 
forcing companies to do things they don't want to do, whether it's negotiate with workers or bring back people who were fired because they got involved in union activism. It's interesting that we found labor in this defensive fight. In this case, arguably, the efforts of unions played some part in getting a deal that is better than some of the deals that we've seen Democrats agree to in the past, particularly when it comes to the filibuster, where there's been what advocates in the past argued as mere face-saving by Democrats. We'll see what this sets a precedent for going forward. Speaking of contention between Democrats and unions, we've seen several union leaders um, in recent weeks becoming more critical of Obama's health care plan, which is slowly in the process of being implemented piece by piece. The massive, unwieldy plan um, is now being criticized by the International Brotherhood of Electrical Workers, who are calling for changes specifically to the way that the law will treat multi-employer health care plans, also known as Taft-Hartley plans. Um, those of you who listened to our interview with Rich Yeselson will know what we all think of Taft-Hartley most of the time, but one of the few things that arguably unions want to keep about this are these multi-employer health care plans that are jointly administered by unions and the employers that may be endangered by the what everybody calls Obamacare um, because it will discourage employers from participating in these plans and this will now place some existing employers at a financial disadvantage. An IBEW spokesperson said that now the health care, the health insurance rather, there is a difference of uh, 350,000 IBEW members is possibly at risk. Um, this follows criticism by United Food and Commercial Workers, um, President Joseph Hansen in an op-ed in The Hill calling for changes to the law adjusting rules so that low-income workers would be able to receive the same government subsidy for buying insurance through a union plan than they, that they would through the health insurance exchanges, which are going to be um, set up on a state level, and some states are already saying they don't want to implement, and it's an ongoing bit of confusion. But it is interesting to see unions who largely backed the passage of this plan, even though it was a far cry from a you know real national health care plan, Um, now coming out and being very critical of it. Hansen wrote that it creates unstoppable incentives for employers to reduce weekly hours for workers currently on our plans and push them onto the exchanges where many will pay higher costs for poorer insurance with a more limited network of providers. So we're seeing many criticisms coming up as the pieces of the law move towards implementation. We will no doubt see more criticisms, more compromises, more changes um, Republicans certainly want to overhaul the or get rid of the entire thing. So I'm sure once again that we will have more on this in the future. Last week we saw the latest strike by federally contracted and subcontracted workers through the Good Jobs Nation campaign, an effort backed, among others, by the Service Employees International Union. This is a campaign we've talked about before on the podcast, but one interesting subplot, I thought, was the Smithsonian Museum, through its official Twitter account, Smithsonian, again, a government museum, asserting repeatedly on Twitter that the press was wrong and the workers were not on strike. So I took the opportunity to talk to a Smithsonian spokesperson the day after the work stoppage, and she backed away a bit from the strong declaration the Smithsonian had made that there was not a strike, (laughs) but she offered a couple arguments for why this might not be a real strike. One was that she said it wasn't a strike 
because the workers didn't physically show up, begin their shifts, and then walk away during their shifts. So in other words, it's not a walk out unless you are working and then walking out, according to one definition, at least (laughs) hypothesized by the Smithsonian (laughs) spokesperson. Also, she suggested that since the contractor that runs food services there had said that there was full staffing and that the place was not shut down, that might mean that it was not a strike. I I did try to clarify whether she meant that people had not collectively chosen not to show up to their shifts, and it appears she was trying to distinguish between a group of people not showing up to work, which the Smithsonian is not denying happened, and those people's jobs all being done by managers or not being done at all. So my curiosity led me to the Smithsonian's website where I looked through their archives to see some of the strikes that the Smithsonian has documents on. You could take, for example, the 1934 Longshore Strike where management brought in replacement workers and so the work was not either entirely shut down nor done entirely by management. And so it, it appears that there may be a more strict definition a a more narrow definition of what counts as a strike being applied by the Smithsonian when it's workers at the Smithsonian participating in a work stoppage than when the Smithsonian is teaching about strikes that have taken place throughout U.S. history. I find that curious but also interesting because we really are at a moment where the limits of the strike are being pushed. There's an argument to be made by labor scholars who are not trolling or (laughs) minimizing strikes by their own employees or subcontracted employees that these strikes that are in significant part symbolic can lack some of the potency that certain strikes in American history have had. We certainly have seen increasing prevalence of strikes that don't shut down production, that are short term, that involve a minority of the workforce. This is a trend that Sarah and I have both written about elsewhere. And of course, that has led some to debate, well, what what is the the floor for something to be a strike? I think there's a more productive conversation if we accept a broad understanding of what a strike is, that it can include, for example, something like the day without an immigrant on May 1st in 2006, where without the involvement of a union, without majorities in a particular workplace, without a demand that was primarily against a particular employer, lots of people who were against anti-immigrant laws collectively chose not to go to work as an act of protest. And I think if you leave out an action like that, or something like what happened at the Smithsonian when you talk about strikes, you're going to be left with a fairly impoverished definition. So a, a theme that may recur as we watch striking strikes of the future. Now, we're very glad to be joined by an outstanding investigative journalist, Lee Fong. Lee is a fellow at the Nation Institute. He reports on a blog at The Nation. He is the author of a new book called The Machine, A Field Guide to the Resurgent Right. And he's here to talk to us about some of labor's enemies and what they're up to, how they coordinate, 
and what it means for the future of policy in the United States. I got bills galore, I need my bread up. Am I the only person in this room that's fed up? No. Obama, man, I'm trying to get paid, but can we please get a raise on minimum wage? So, Lee, on Friday evening, Senate Majority Leader Harry Reid put out a statement celebrating this U.S. industry-backed Bangladesh factory safety plan that's been panned by labor groups both here and in Bangladesh. The president of Bangladesh's garment union told me he was astonished that Reid would support this weaker alternative that's been put forward by Walmart, Gap, and the Bipartisan Policy Center. You reported a few days before that announcement on a behind-the-scenes full-court press to round up political and media support for that plan. You and I have also reported together in the past about the ascension to the Office of Management and Budget of the former president of Walmart's foundation. What can you tell us about this Walmart, Gap, Olympia Snow, George Mitchell plan and the interests behind it and lobbying for it? Thanks again for, for having me on. You know, Walmart and Gap and many of the other retailers that refused to sign onto the European-led accord on safety in, in Bangladesh, uh, they've taken extreme efforts to promote this alternative agreement and to give it some sense of uh, legitimacy by introducing it through the Bipartisan Policy Institute and uh, bringing on former Senators Olympia Snow and George Mitchell. I think a lot of folks have already dissected the two different plans, uh, showing how the Walmart-led agreement uh, kind of lacks teeth, it isn't legally binding, uh, the retailers get to choose um, their own inspectors, the whole kind of payment plan for upgrading uh, these facilities and providing transparency into their addresses and locations and, uh, uh, and, and who works there and who owns them, that whole part isn't there in the Walmart-led plan. So there are huge, huge differences between the two plans, but uh, what Walmart has done has really put on a full-court press in promoting this rival agreement and then kind of trying to uh, portray Senators Olympia Snow and George Mitchell and the Bipartisan Policy Center um, as independent actors promoting this plan, And, and that really isn't the case. Can you situate this latest round of sort of these voluntary business-led, you know, quote-unquote worker safety plans in a sort of longer history of attempts to co-opt popular anger over sweatshops and terrible working conditions? I mean, one of the things that I've always wondered is, like, wouldn't it just be cheaper to institute the safety plan that already exists than shell out all this money for lobbyists and spend all this time coming up with your own? Well, you know, that's an interesting question. Um, I think the companies did do a cost-benefit analysis or, you know, something to that effect, looking at, you know, how much will it cost them to enter uh, into the European-led agreement, which, you know, it could result in lawsuits because it is legally binding if they don't follow some of the the safety uh, standards that are set. Um, It will cost them money in terms of upgrades versus how much does it cost to buy a think tank in D.C. to hire a PR firm. You know, after publishing the story, I found out that Fleischman Hillard, the big PR firm, um, is helping them roll this thing out. How much does it cost to do that? How much does it cost to bring on these former senators? And if you compare the the, the costs, you know, I I think at least from the retailer's point of view, it's probably cheaper 
to just employ lots of spend. How much they're spending exactly on the PR and lobbying, it's not clear. Um, but what is obvious is that these groups, uh, like the Bipartisan Policy Center, which is funded by Walmart, or Senator George Mitchell, whose law firm and lobbying firm, DLA Piper, is a big client of The Gap, another one of the retailers that have gone renegade along with um, Walmart and JCPenney. We don't know exactly how much uh, they're being paid, but it's probably less than the amount these retailers would have had to, um, put up to kind of uh, support the, the, the much stronger European-led accord. So you've written both at The Nation and in your book, The Machine, about the web of think tanks and conservative groups that have been pushing individually and in a coordinated way bills designed to erode the power of organized labor, erode collective bargaining rights, particularly at the state level, the push for so-called right-to-works bills, including those that have passed in places where 10 years ago you might not have imagined, imagined it was possible, like Michigan. What strikes you about this network, particularly what role does ALEC play in it, and the, the response to the kind of reporting you do from conservatives is sometimes to say that there is symmetry, that the left is organized and funded in, in a similar or equivalent way. What's your view of that kind of comparison? Sure. Well, you know, what's, what's two kind of um, responses there. Um, what's been kind of incredible is the level of solidarity among large Fortune 500 companies and some of these very ideological or politically active uh, conservative donors who have just poured in tens of millions of dollars in setting up new think tanks just over the last four years, um, or five years since 2009, new think tanks in the states, uh, increasing existing think tanks on the right in D.C. Uh, that have pushed these types of anti-labor policies. In Wisconsin, just as a quick anecdote, you know, in, in 2009 conservative donors set up two new uh, think tanks and reporting outlets, the McIver Institute and Wisconsin Reporter, that when um, Governor Walker was elected, these two groups played a pivotal role in not just promoting uh, the attacks on collective bargaining, but working to discredit labor back groups or uh, worker protests throughout the state to help provide the kind of political space to make those types of policies possible. And we see this template replicated in state after state after state, where think tanks are growing at a phenomenal pace and um, helping conservative or Republican legislators implement these kind of anti-worker bills. And to the criticism that, you know, the left does this as well, that they set up think tanks and hire reporters and, um, you know, uh, figure out ways to get their message out into the media... Uh, to an extent, that's true. Uh, everyone's attempting to influence public opinion in their own way. But if you talk to some of the, the left-wing think tanks and organizations on the state level, the biggest difference is resources. Um, and, and some would say tactics, but let's just focus on the, the resources. If you look at the Progress Now affiliates in places like Ohio and Michigan, they're outfunded by the right by uh, a factor of something like seven or eight to one. And um, if you ask these folks, where do you get your funding, the, the Ohio affiliate, at least, said they got, in 2011, I believe, um, about less than 20% of their funds from labor unions and the rest from individuals or foundations, virtually no money from corporations. 
Um, but as we've seen from leaked uh, donor lists from some of these conservative think tanks that are just growing at an incredible pace uh, on the, the state level, the biggest donors are companies like Verizon, uh, AT&T, yes, the Koch brothers, but also uh, many large publicly traded corporations that are now playing in this, this space alongside very radical or at least radicalized Republican donors. Um, so to sort of switch gears, we've talked a lot about the education reform or the education deform movement, as some people call it, on this podcast. But So last year, you had a big investigative piece on the online learning wing of that movement. Can you tell us a little bit about the, the ideology behind this push for online learning, um, how it fits into the larger corporate neoliberal education reform movement, why right-wingers love digital schools? Well, you know, th- this is a, another issue where there's been uh, a great level of coordination among companies that are interested in, in privatizing education or at least benefiting from some of these education reforms and some of these uh, conservative groups that have their own agenda that coheres well uh, with these businesses or these investors because, you know, they're interested in just getting rid of public education or at a minimum taking out uh, teachers' unions and other groups that they see as their political opposition. You know, this kind of dynamic isn't necessarily new, um, but it's really kind of grown at a pace that we haven't seen in, in many years. I'd say since 2010, when Republicans kind of swept uh, lots of state houses, picked up several governorships, flipped, uh, I, I believe, more than half a dozen state legislatures, and started really implementing some of these reforms at a very uh, quick speed, I suppose, the, the biggest kind of reform that's, that's remaking K-12 through uh, education is the push towards digital learning, vouchers that take the amount the state or school district would spend on a student and allowing uh, the parents to apply that money to a for-profit online school so a child will you know take their classes either 100% online or you know half online and then half in a brick-and-mortar school. And, you know, there hasn't been much uh, evidence to show that this is a superior form of education. Rather, in in places like uh, Colorado and Ohio, it's been shown that a a lot of the students don't bother um, even logging in. There are huge dropout rates, even uh, among the kind of neoliberal tests in terms of passing, you know, uh, yearly performance tests, these schools lag behind, but what a lot of these companies have done is that they've they've worked with uh, the conservative right to develop foundations and other political groups that have lobbied legislators, that have promoted this in the media, that can um, bus parents and tea partiers to the Capitol and and, and make it seem to policymakers that there's a groundswell of support for these, uh, these types of ideas, and they've been very successful in passing them all over the country. And I think we're just learning now in 2013, we're starting to see a little bit of blowback. Colorado has canceled their relationship with one of the big companies, K-12 Inc., and so did Maine. Their uh, virtual charter school uh, severed ties with K-12. But, you know, we just finished the first full school year for a lot of these kids that are kind of the guinea pigs for this, these types of uh, reforms. Whew, fun. So our last question, it's a big one. We're going to ask you to solve all of our problems for us. They have all of this money and all of these organizations. How do we beat them? 
You know, um, that is a big question, and I de definitely don't have uh, a ready-made answer. Yeah. But you know, what, what's interesting here is that you know what one of the big pushbacks in, in terms of the main effort to pass online education and to expand it all over the state was simply a, a one big in investigation from a local newspaper that did a, a, a simple Freedom of Information Act request between the governor's office and um, some of these kind of proxy groups, the American Legislative Exchange Council, Jeb Bush's organization, he's got several, but uh, these, he has these education reform 501c3s, and between some of these companies, Connections Academy, which is now owned by Pearson, uh, also K-12 Inc. again, and after amassing all of these emails that show that when the governor said that you know he was implementing these policies to the benefit of students, and then showing the public that no, um, rather these policies were motivated by campaign donations and um, ready-made legislation written by the school company lobbyists. Uh, I think there was a big public outcry, and that led to those contracts being canceled. And we saw a similar dynamic in Colorado, though um, they had to actually see uh, how students fared in these schools for there to be a backlash. Even in Tennessee, um, there's been a lot of rumbling, even on the right, that these policies were rushed through and that kids won't receive a satisfactory uh, education and that um, parents and, and taxpayers are basically being defrauded because their money is being wasted by these big publicly traded corporations. That's a very tiny part of the answer, just sunlight, I suppose. But it does take kind of a new vision or a new kind of perspective on these policies because right now you kind of have a consensus. Uh, the, the cable news networks, um, a lot of the big foundations, they're kind of hesitant to criticize these reforms. There's a great piece out in, I think, the Council on Higher Education, I think just yesterday, looking at how little criticism there's been on some of these policies because everyone in the education field is, is kind of hoping for a grant from the Gates Foundation. So they're, they're hesitant to, you know, be as skeptical as they should be. But it just takes more, more sunlight and, and, and more folks questioning these policies, at least for now. Journalism is the answer. We like that around here, right? <laughs> well, a little bias here, but yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, Lee. I'ma make the whole world hear your beautiful truth. I'ma make the whole world feel you. How you gon' fight capitalism being quiet? How you gon' fight racism being shy? How you gon' fight the man when you ain't got no plan? How you gon' live your life when your ass won't fight? Don't say what you Again, check out Lee's book. We'll link to it online. That's The Machine. This brings us to the close of the podcast when we say, ARG! I wish I had written that. And... Sarah, if you were going to be far, far away from someone you loved very much and unable to be in contact with them, and all you had to keep the two of you together over a long period of time was that you just knew that you would each agree that every night at the same time you would experience jealousy of a work of writing by someone else, what would that work of writing be this week? This week, um, as many weeks, I am a big fan of Michelle Chen, a recent belabored guest. Um, this week, Michelle has a piece up at In These Times called What India's Sex Workers Want, Power, Not Rescue. Um, which, I, I mean, I say the title right away, partly so that you can go find it and read it, but partly because I think that's a really, really important statement there. 
sex workers are workers who need power. They are not sort of uniquely victimized, unlike other workers that we might talk about. And what they need is to be able to control their own lives more, not to be told what they need by other people. In this case, Michelle focuses on a few groups of people who like to tell sex workers what they need. Um, In many cases, the cops and also U.S. politicians. So she interviews Indian sex worker advocate Mina Seishu from um, a group called Sangram. And she talks about U.S. policy, the so-called anti-prostitution loyalty oath that was recently overturned by the Supreme Court that had required that um, the mandatory pledge that NGOs who get U.S. anti-AIDS funding vowed to oppose prostitution. Melissa Girogrant wrote recently about that pledge in the Supreme Court case. But one of the problems is that that ruling only applies to U.S.-based groups. So groups in other countries still face the problem of U.S. politicians using their money to express their quote-unquote moral views. Um, Michelle has a wonderful line in this piece that she says, when aid comes with political strings attached, poor governments are pressured to mirror Washington's culture wars. Um, Michelle covers sex work regularly in these times, and I'm happy that she does it in the context of labor, because that is how we should be talking about it. Um, Josh, what makes you really, really, really jealous this week? This week, Chris Geidner, really the indispensable journalist in the United States on issues of LGBT employment law and policy and what may or may not become of it in this era, has a story at BuzzFeed breaking news about cases in which public sector and private sector transgender workers fought alleged employment discrimination. Chris wrote last year about a landmark Equal Employment Opportunity Commission determination, finding that discrimination for being transgender was a form of gender discrimination and therefore something that was illegal under federal law. As Chris notes in this piece, that could still potentially end up at the Supreme Court. The question of who will or won't follow that law is one that is complex but he has evidence in this latest piece for BuzzFeed that the EEOC's taking that stance has begun to yield results. This piece is called Federal Government Decisions Mark a Changed Landscape for Transgender Workers. Chris reports on the one hand that the key plaintiff in the case that led to this determination last year, Maya Macy, has won her case against the Bureau of Alcohol, Tobacco, Firearms, and Explosives, which had a sudden decrease in its interest in hiring her at the point that she notified them that she would be showing up to work as a woman. Along with this victory for Maya Macy, he also reports on a previously unreported case at a private company in Maryland, a government contractor, in which the EEOC found reasonable cause on behalf of the plaintiff. He argues that this helped to lead to a settlement, a settlement of a type that we may see more of. All of this plays out at a time when the Senate recently held a hearing on the Employment Non-Discrimination Act, a topic we've talked about on the podcast before, something that remains tremendously popular, remains a protection that many Americans think already exists, but 
not one that most people think is on the verge of making it out of a Republican House. It also takes place against the backdrop of the Obama administration so far declining to issue an executive order on federal contracting, banning federal contractors from engaging in any kind of LGBT discrimination. It's a topic that we'll be continuing to watch, and again, Chris is an indispensable journalist covering it. That brings us to the end of our 15th episode. If you're in D.C. or can be in D.C. on July 25th, please come to a dissent panel, including myself, Saket Sony of the National Guest Worker Alliance, Rutgers expert Janice Fine, and guest workers, in which we'll be discussing my feature for dissent, guest workers as bellwether. In the meantime, please tweet at us with hashtag belabored. Please tweet us at us at DissentMag with story ideas, with things that you'd like to see explained in our intermittent explainer segment. And please, any day, feel free to tweet your tremendous appreciation of our producer, Natasha Lewis, who we appreciate tremendously. Her Twitter handle is at Tosh M. Lewis. You can tell her how much you love her. We definitely do. Um, thanks once again, as always, to Descent Magazine for hosting us and to all of you for listening to us. And we will be back next week. See you then. This life is hard. 